everybody. Welcome to episode 27 of the Mountain Bike Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Lee, with my co-host, Stephen Lewis. Hey, man. Good morning. How you doing? Good. We got you back from Canada, finally. Uh, yeah, you, you smuggled me back from lot across of the border. diplomatic stuff. I had too there. many Timbits. It's, they would have let me come back. Yeah, yeah, too many Timbits. And we have a special guest with us this morning, uh, Reno resident as well. Well, Verdi resident to be to be exact. <laughs> yeah, let's, he's barely incorporated <laughs> in Reno. <laughs> That's true. Kurt Gensheimer, what's up, man? How you doing? Good morning. What's yeah. happening? Nice morning voice. That's good. You're welcome. That was our intent calling you in here at 6 a.m. to That's record right. the podcast. It's nice and smooth. Get everybody woken up and... Feeling good for the day. That's like right. freshly churned butter. <laughs> yes. Uh, what do you think of the of the new Trainer Road offices, man? This is your first time here. Unbelievable. Yeah. Seriously, I I'm blown away. It's pretty sweet, right? It's amazing. <laughs> it's it's, it's cool incredible clip. how much time and effort and energy and obviously money you guys have invested into this place. It's really cool to see that. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. So, uh, thanks Trainer Road for the microphones. Uh, we appreciate it and the the wonderful space we're in. So. Uh, to find out more about the podcast, listen to episodes, do everything else like that, mtbpodcast.com. Uh, you can share it, find us on social things too, right, Stephen? Yeah. Um, at MTB Podcast on Instagram, the MTB Podcast on Twitter, and the MT, well, just MTB Podcast on Facebook. Yes. And you can also uh, get, leave us a review on iTunes. Yeah. Five stars is preferred. If not five stars, let us know what we can do to be better. And uh, we'll even read some of the feedback that you've given us this week uh, in an effort to be better, to really show you that we, we mean that. Yes. So it's all, this is about you guys as much as us. Uh, Steven, before we get into the news, I just, as you mentioned, I just got back from Canada, a up north mm-hmm. and uh, for a week. And it was a pure riding vacation. It was pretty sweet, man. Yeah. You you actually cleared the way. You went up to BC the week before? I week think? before, yeah. I believe I got back the day before you left. Did you do any riding up there? You went to Penticton? A little. Yeah, I did a little bit of riding. I actually, um, I hate to say it, but I didn't ride the mountain bike at all in <laughs> Canada. I just rode the cross bike. There we are. Which is fine. It's a good cross bike. That yeah. Super X is amazing. Yeah, I think it's pretty sweet, man. So how's the cross bike on A-Line? Uh, I don't know. I, I haven't done that yet, personally. <laughs> I was in the wrong part of BC to do that, but, uh, you know, we'll try it next time. Mostly just gravel rides then? Yeah, mostly just gravel rides. I did uh, about 35 miles each way of the uh, the Kettle Valley Rail Trail, which is a pretty cool oh, um, setup. It goes all the way from Princeton, BC, and travels down through to uh, Summerland, and then down to Penticton, and then up around uh Lake, uh, Okanagan. Yeah. Okanagan. (laughs) Okanagan. Sure. And, uh, up around to, uh, Kelowna and then it keeps going. So it's actually a really cool trail. It's a nice 3% grade all the way through. They just removed all the, you know, the rail, uh, from pretty much all of it and just left this really nice gravel bed on it. So perfect. Pretty cool. It's a pretty, really cool trail actually. You know, I was, I mean, I, I, have known BC is gorgeous. Uh, I think I even did like a report in elementary school in BC. I found that out way back then. And then every ski movie I've ever seen, every mountain bike movie, it's always gorgeous, but I was blown away at how beautiful that country is up there. Yeah. Just stunning. Uh, we went, we went to Whistler, uh, Whistler proper and we were staying there and when we got up, the top of the world was closed, that trail, uh, yeah. but you could still take the lift up without yeah. your bike and just, just check it out up there. And I, I could have stayed there for hours, just 
It was just, it took me back. The glaciers, I mean, you're looking at sea level up to like 12,000 feet and the mountains are just, the scale of everything blows you away. It was so cool. Definitely ridiculous. People were so nice too. Uh, We had one waiter who was a total jerk. It was super weird. Like uh, he walked up to our table and he was like, I need everybody's attention. And like, we like stopped and looked up at him and then he like recited the specials for what was going on. Then after that, like, just like, Super weird and uncomfortable. Somebody ordered something. He's like, well, I hate to say I told you so, but I've been doing this for six years. And then like, it's like super weird, man. I was like, six years, man. This is a pizza joint. Like, like if so, in six years, you probably should have learned to be kind. But was he actually from uh, yeah, he BC? Was, yeah, he was. The only person that we came across that was impolite, though. Everybody else was so kind, like so awesome. Interesting. Uh, even when I, I, when I swiped my card at the... At the, at the grocery store, the guy, the clerk gave me my groceries and was like, sick, and handed me the groceries with a, with a bro nod. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. it was just laid back. It was super cool. Uh, I loved, loved Whistler. So, and uh, we rode in two days at the bike park and then three days in Squamish. And Squamish was so much fun. I could have done five days there Lots and wouldn't have even scratched the surface. Yeah. So cool. Uh, we rode half Nelson. Uh, probably too much, but that trail—it's not difficult at all. Uh, have you have you ridden that trail at all, Kurt? I haven't ridden Squamish. No, I've just ridden near Whistler. Yeah. It's like it is the most perfectly created trail I have ever ridden. You you don't have to pedal ever. It's like a it's like a proper flow trail, but it's the best roller coaster you've ever ridden on steroids. It's just so much flow. The G forces nearly break your legs at times. You're going through the berm so fast, you know. But they're it's incredible. Uh, the trail up there and then plenty of raw gnarlier stuff too. It's just so good. So if you end up going to Whistler, go down to Squamish. It's like a 30 minute drive, 35 minute drive, I think. Is that in metric minutes or <laughs> yes, imperial minutes? minutes? Yeah, okay. old minutes. Okay. Old minutes. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so much fun. And the Alice Lake area, uh, the Garibaldi Provincial Park area, those are really good spots down there. Uh, it's so much fun. So I, I I personally would not recommend doing Comfortably Numb. I don't know if you rode that trail. Is that in, That's in Whistler, yeah. In Whistler, just like basically north of Blackcomb, and it connects you way up to over like uh, in the direction, obviously, of, of Pemberton. Oh, yeah, but I don't think I've done that one. It's like a, I only rode the southern portion of it because they said that was the fun part, the descent. Uh, I climbed up and then just descended down that and then worked in some other stuff on my early morning rides. But... That it wasn't that fun. It was okay. I just felt like it wasn't truly technical enough, at least in that section, to be really like you know challenging and engaging, I guess. But it also wasn't uh, flowy enough at all to be you know entertaining. It was just kind of a weird middle ground. But and I know that's a com- popular trail, so yeah. people head up there. You can ignore that. But the other thing I learned, Stephen, is you. I brought my XC bike to Whistler, which everyone thought I was insane, and I got weird looks in the lift line, like every time in the lift line. But it was perfectly fine for the trails I was riding. And, and something I think that we think a lot of the time is Whistler just has crazy, gnarly trails everywhere, and they do. But they also have plenty of trails for every ability level, Absolutely. even total beginners. Like, yeah. I, I think that that would be a great way for a total beginner to mountain biking to learn is to go up there and go ride Easy Does It and go ride Del Boca Vista and these little trails that are, that are fun and, and easy and safe. And it's pretty cool, man. Yeah. So it was I, awesome. I'd imagine like blue velvet was probably phenomenal on the ASR. It was so good. Yeah. I think that if I had a downhill bike, blue velvet would have been pretty lame. 
Uh, yeah, it, it was boring on a downhill bike, but yeah. yeah, it's just you know wide open and fast. But the cool thing is when you're on 120 mil up front and then 100 mil in the back, braking bumps do pose a problem when you're going like 40 miles an hour into them and they're that big. Yeah. So uh, I would just hop my way around them and constantly be searching for you know alternate lines. It made it really fun yeah. and it handled everything just fine. I mean, it was handling three, four foot drops just fine. That bike is really you know it's a capable bike, but still. Run what you brung when you go to Whistler. Now, one of the things I want to ask is, I see that you rode part of Crack Addict. Did I? I think you did. I think I did. How did that work out for you? Because that's not really a <laughs> no. ASR friendly trail. No, there's an, and there also um, that one we did. Uh, let me think. Uh, Duff Man and No Joke and some other ones that were chunky and, and blacks that yeah. were pretty. They're pretty gnarly in spots, and it was good. I think that. Um, you know, there were definitely, I had to do a lot on the bike to make sure that I was not going to put myself on consecutive drops into tight turns that I was, you know, not getting out of control. So a lot of body English there. Mm -hmm. Uh, but the bike still never felt outpaced. Like there's a certain spot on Mr. Toad's wild ride in South Lake Tahoe, where I feel genuinely outpaced with 120 and a hundred. Uh, but, uh, that I never felt that on the trails that I was on in Whistler. So okay. it's pretty sweet. Nice. So much fun. Uh, that place is, if you haven't been there, it's what you think it possibly could be times 10. It's just so cool. Yeah. So naming of trails there is also excellent. As good <laughs> as the trails are to ride the names, there's a whole network of trails near Lost Lake named after Frank Zappa songs. Yeah. When I saw that, I was just blown away. Grand Wazoo. Yeah, exactly. Uh, geez, uh, how, how, or why Johnny can't read is another yeah, one. Dynamo home. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> it's awesome. And for those of you who are under 40 years old and don't know who Frank Zappa is. <laughs> Get a music just, education and yeah. learn about Frank Zappa. Yeah. Right? Don't eat the yellow snow. That's really your introduction That's to Frank Zappa. To yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. But it was so cool. Uh, thanks to my brother, his wife, and the seven friends that came up with us. Made it a, a, a super fun trip. Uh, bring your friends up there, and you can, if you bring up a bunch of friends and you, you know, find an Airbnb or something like that, you can do it for pretty cheap. Yeah. So, and right now, uh, which obviously this isn't, this is a timely thing and it will expire, but, you know, a dollar 30 Canadian is a dollar US. So it's not bad. Uh, you end up getting away pretty cheap on stuff. Yeah. I went there with 100 US and bought a car. <laughs> that's, so. that's quite an exchange <laughs> rate. Yeah. Quite an exchange rate. Uh, yeah. Uh, the, then the last uh, last suggestion, not the last suggestion. I'm sure I'm going to talk about things from this trip for a long time. But food in the village, there's an Australian meat pie place called Peaked Pies, mm -hmm. and it is so good, like so good. That was my favorite place that that we ate, and it's pretty cheap. You can get it's like a, a small pot pie, but one of them will fill you up, and it's like seven bucks US, so pretty cheap. So thirty five Canadian. Yes, yeah, that... <laughs> easy there. I think okay. you're massive it off. <laughs> Um, but, uh, if, especially for us coming from a Trump country over here, we have to be easy on that stuff. Who knows? It could turn. So, but I think that, uh, with that, that place, man, you just can't go wrong. Super cool. I loved it. So much fun. Gorgeous. So, uh, with that though, let's get into the news. News team, assemble! All right, Steven, <clears throat> the news. Lots of racing happened. Can we just sum it up like that? There's yes, like, there's there like was lots of racing. It there's, did happen. People won. People did not win. <laughs> there's too much to cover. Yeah. Uh, Val Nord and Lenzerheide happened. Uh, XC and DH in both cases. Yep. 
Uh, it was good to see Matthew Vanderpool back challenging Nino Scherter. That was fun to see. Yeah. Somewhat. I mean, still yeah, somewhat Nino's, challenging, but Nino's just off on his own. It's crazy. Yeah. And then Yana Bellamoina on the female XC side of things is like, she's dominating. Uh, she's super dominating. I mean, I think uh, the Czech Republic, I think they're super happy. That's where she's from, right? I, she's uh, Czech or Ukraine. I, she's from the Ukraine. Ukraine, I believe. Yeah, she's Ukraine. Forgive us if we mix that up. Yeah. Um, I think that's right, though. Yeah, she's Ukraine. Uh, anyways, yeah, awesome DH racing. I was bummed for Aaron Gwynn. Uh, he got a flat again, and, and he had a tube, man. Like, he got a flat, and I saw a tube poking out of there, I think, on the video. And I was just like, what are you doing? Like, why do we have tubes? You'd think that they'd be running mooses or something like that, right? And downhill, I don't know. You sure it was a tube, not some kind of, like, might rubberized, like, rim protector or something? I think it was the flat protector, the pinch <clears throat> flat protector system. Yeah, it might have been. It might have even been something like a moose, you know? Yeah. I know that they, I know that that's coming around in a mountain biking. They're getting them better, so yeah. that they actually have better feel. So, oh, it's just, just a bummer. That guy has a lot of mechanicals, a lot of mechanicals. He goes big or... That's what he does. Zero or zero, you know? Like, yeah. American hero, that guy. There you so, go. I don't know if he's a good follow on Instagram, by the way. I don't know. He is. <laughs> His Insta stories are very, it's just funny. You'd expect him to be kind of like bro and talking about, you know, doing the normal pro athlete thing. Showing pictures of his light bars and yeah. things like that. And not at all, man. He's yeah. like giving you personal updates about uh, the bee situation he has, like a bee infestation in his pool. Like, he's just... <laughs> he's just Seriously. A, he's a Real nap. life stuff, man. It is, Real man. life stuff. People can't relate to how fast he goes down a mountain, downhill on a mountain bike, but bee infestations? Heck yeah, we all suffer. So, okay. yeah, I, he's a good follow. He's a good dude, it seems. So, uh, so yeah, tons of that happened. Uh, BME, the Big Mountain Enduro Series in Winter Park happened. That was a Yeti sweep uh, yep. across the board. Pretty sweet stuff. Good job, tribe members there. Uh, CES China Peak happened, which that one looks fun. When I get it's, a five, it's always fun. When I get a 5.5 five next year, I want to go do that yeah. one. That looks fun. I guess segment five scared a lot of people. Is that the really chunky, rocky section that Dylan Santos just cartwheeled in? Uh, I think that was either four or five. I don't remember because those two trails go down a very similar part of the mountain. Yeah. That was in the highlight reel where Curtis Duncan, who's friend of the podcast, crashes really hard <laughs> over the handlebars. And uh, that was segment five. So, gotcha. Yeah, it was good. Kudos to Dylan Santos really quick. If you haven't watched this, you can check out the recap. I think they show his crash in there. Yeah. But he crashed hard. And like, still won the race. still won the race. He's fast. But wow. Yeah. Pretty amazing. And and one thing you'll see with that guy when he crashes, uh, he's not like Eli Tomac in the motocross world. When he crashes, he pops right back up and sprints to his bike and gets going. I just, uh, I like the focus rather than dwelling on the fact that he just crashed and probably threw his race away. He just yeah. kept going and it worked out. Yeah, and that one, he sprinted a good, I don't know, 20 feet up the hill, <laughs> yeah. get back on the trail, get his bike, go. And he was on the Ripley LS, I think, at that one. Yeah, so. that's why he probably got pitched over the bar. <laughs> it's a long enough travel, man. That 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 China Peak place is gnarly, rowdy, man. Yeah, you better bring your A game and be comfortable with two wheel drifting and yeah, it's loose. And at the pace that he charges at too, yeah, he's moving at a quick clip. So yeah, BC bike race is going on right now. And before, yep. I always thought that like, well, I I think it was like a year or two ago they had like a sickness that like spread through the camp because they camp that that one. And they had like a sickness that like spread through and it was like old pioneer days, like a, I don't know if it was a gout infestation or what happened. <laughs> but like, or yeah. yeah. So that one kind of fell off my bucket list once I saw that. But after riding up in that region and seeing that they're riding actually yesterday, they rode a lot of the trails that I rode in Squamish. I'm like, I want to do that race, man. So looks pretty cool. 
Uh, not sure. I think uh, Kabush is solidly in the lead there. Edinger is close on his tail. And then on the female side of things, Katarina's killing it with Magali Roche. She's, yeah. she's legends, man. Yep. That's amazing. Yep. And then uh, Trans BC Enduro is happening, which I heard that race has like a $2,500 entry fee. Something I like actually that. have no idea. Yeah, I might be wrong on that. Send that, if you know, send that in. That's crazy, man. That's Are a lot of money. Staying at like really nice hotels every night? I mean, or you what? better be getting massages post-race with that at least. So that's some expensive stuff. But looks amazing. It's in Fernie, BC, I think, is where the whole race happens. Okay. Uh, might be going into different regions, but amazing looking. So that's the racing stuff. And honestly, a lot of gear things happen, but let's just focus on one. The Hightower LT from Santa Cruz came out. Yeah. Have you ridden that thing? Have not ridden it yet. Have you ridden the normal high tower? Yes. Uh, what do you think about the normal high tower? I think it's an excellent bike. What does it do well? What does it not it do? It pedals well? really well. Okay. I think the biggest thing about the new Santa Cruz VPP designs that I've noticed is that they pedal way better than the previous generation bikes, and they ride like they have more travel than they actually are at. Like you know, like you look at the bike and it's what's the high tower one thirty five. I think it's yeah, like one thirty, and it rides like a bike that's bigger. Okay. Yeah. Especially the tall boy. Yeah. Tall boy is only one ten in the back. That definitely feels like a bigger bike than a one ten. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. It's it, and that's mostly that lower link, right? And yeah. Then that they lower link, they're stuff. lengthening it out, making it longer, so that your wheel path changes considerably. And so, yeah, yeah, that's like smarter them to do. And and I I we've seen a lot of people running the high tower with longer shocks and forks on yeah. there for quite a while. Um, Rat boy comes to mind, for example, on yeah. having that setup. And now Santa Cruz has made it. Yep. So uh, for everybody, I think it's smart. I, I, you know, I could see almost like the, I could see the high tower range almost replacing kind of like, you know, phasing out a lot of the other ones, kind of filling up that space and them just using that high tower moniker for the rest of them. Cause the, I mean, I haven't met a single person that speaks ill of the high tower. It's just a good riding bike. Yeah. So um, it's an interesting bike in the sense that I, I think this travel range is what a lot of people are going to think they need, but they probably don't need it. Like you mentioned, Kurt, it rides like it has more travel. And at 130, the average Joe, he's not going to need more than that. Yeah. Yeah. Especially if, it's, if, especially if it's 29. Yeah. Yeah. You can get away with so much. But at the same time, I wouldn't be surprised if the Hightower LT outsells the Hightower because we oh, always yeah. think that we need more travel. It's like Definitely. horsepower. Yeah. You know, more of it. You can right? always use more horsepower, right? <laughs> yeah. We all drive Toyotas. Of course we need more horsepower. <laughs> yes. <laughs> this is true. Does it, does it come in the, in the, in the Brocoma desert storm color? Which like one? Like the Nomad? I don't know if the LT comes in that color. Yeah. I don't know either. So. That would be called quicksand, by quicksand, the way. Quicksand, not Brocoma. It's not Brocoma. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, the mountain bike world is wild on that color. They love it. So. I think the Brocoma color is actually the magnetic gray. Yeah. Actually, actually, that's the color you have, but, yeah, you know, yeah, whatever. Uh, yeah, well, nice. Thanks, man. <laughs> um, we saw one. Maybe that's something we disagree with right there, answering the question from last time. <laughs> there you go. Uh, there was one... Um, there was a, a shop that was renting bikes and there were new nomads there. And I saw one one guy actually point out the bike with like the quicksand color. And he was like, that bike is so dope, man. I love those bikes. Nomads are so good. And the other guy pointed to the black one and was like, I think I like that one better. He's like, no, that bike sucks. <laughs> Same bike, but just that color. So good on you, Santa Cruz. There you you hit the bros right where, you know, right where you knew their, their weak spot was. So and pretty awesome stuff. Uh, with that, questions. Question. It's a ridiculous question. False. 
Now that's debatable. Uh, first one from Chrissy Poo. And we're going to try to rip through these pretty quick. And by the way, thank you for sending in the pseudonyms. I like it. Yeah, People Chrissy, like, she's actually, this is her second question, I think. It is. Yeah. yeah. Chrissy Poo. Hello, Jonathan, Stephen, and Kurt in this case. She didn't know you were going to be here, Kurt. I know she'd meant no ill will by that. That's so. okay. I recently scratched my 2017 specialized rock opera comp. What can I do to fix this eyesore? Keep up the impressive podcast. And I would 100% buy some MTB podcast kit. Sweet. Good to hear. Uh, so an aluminum bike, what would you do, Steven? To fix a scratch? Yeah. Put more scratches in it. <laughs> Easy I now. Mean, that's how, that, no, that's how, you, that's how you properly break in a bike. It's like, <laughs> but in all honesty, point. you can usually find touch-up paint from the manufacturers. Um, I don't know what Specialized sells, but you can also call them and get what they call the Pantone code or the RAL code. Mm -hmm. And you can get custom paint mixed up into a little dropper bottle, you know, like a little touch-up bottle. And, do it that way. This is why I like black bikes because Sharpie. Because there's only 17 shades of black instead of 6,000 other <laughs> That's colors. That's true. Yeah, yeah, good point. Yeah. But Sharpies, man, on a black bike, you scratch the thing up and you don't want the scratch to go away. Usually a Sharpie can go a long way to making it look better, at least from five feet. So, you know, it doesn't look too bad. Uh, what, what's your stance on that, Kurt, on fixing up a bike or just letting it run? It's a mountain bike. It's supposed to have scratches. The first scratch is the most painful. Yeah. So... Next ones won't be as bad. I think Just there's I think there's a song about that. The first cut is the deepest, something like that. Something right? like that, yeah. 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 Uh, Andy, the old man. Next question. My current bike is an aluminum 2012 SB95 with 140 front and 120 rear. It's got flow rims and hope hubs, and it's a tank at about 30 pounds. That's what he says there. You know, that's not really a tank, though. I mean, honestly, like 30-pound bikes, like... Uh, so, um, that's like, your average 29 pound or 29 inch enduro bike. That's, yeah. yeah. Th that's not a tank. Um, but Andy, uh, your perspective is that it's a tank. So I understand that. Um, I'm looking at a new bike and considering the following Santa Cruz tall boy, high tower or tall boy and the high tower pivot 429 trail, and maybe the Yeti four five though. I don't have a local Yeti dealer anymore. So that is unlikely. That's a good point. I mean, if you don't have a local dealer, it might be kind of tough. It'd be hard to support. Yeah. Yeah. I mean the, the Yeti sells replacement parts online and you can find that with most manufacturers, you know, you can get their parts with a phone call. You can get replacement stuff, but yeah, I get having a dealer that is close by would be good. So he says, I like the tall boy, but worry it is going to be a tad short on the travel. Thus considering the high tower, I have the ability to properly demo the tall boy and pivot on trails, but only parking lot ride a high tower. I would never consider that a demo. Like don't, don't ever buy a bike off of a parking lot demo, right? Well, unless you already know that that's the bike you want. Yeah. So. Yeah, exactly. But if you're trying to decide, a parking lot's just not going to give you enough. Depends how ripped up the parking lot is. <laughs> that's true. Good yeah. point. Yeah. If your parking lot has some skinnies and drops in there and, and some good trails, who knows, some chunk. It could work. If I owned a bike shop, that would be what it would <laughs> Nice. It's like a Land Rover dealer, right? Where they're little like <laughs> their Except real. rock crawling area. Yeah. <laughs> I'm doing air quotes here. Uh, I live in Kansas City, which has a surprising amount of tech and usually make a trip to Colorado or Moab each fall. I'd like to be able to ride my own bike on these bike vacations, and I wouldn't mind something a bit more efficient than my Yeti, but I want a lively bike and don't want to give up the plushness of my current ride. I'm 200 pounds, 47 years old. Will the tall boy be a little too short and travel for Moab? Not super gnarly stuff. Maybe two to three foot drops like those on Porcupine Rim. I'm curious about your thoughts on comparing the geometry of the SB95 with the Pivot and the Santa Cruz bikes and what sort of feel or handling differences I can expect of the five-year newer bikes. Uh, so the SB95 was a little steeper. Yeah. Uh, higher bottom bracket too, I believe. Yes. 
and the chain stays, I'm not sure on the chain stay length compared to modern bikes, but, uh, that one, uh, you'll, the new one, like the high, high tower, for example, that one is going to be far improved. What would you say as far as riding Moab, Kurt, on that type of stuff, 47 years old, 200 pounds, you know, is, would you say tall boy or high tower for the guy? Um, honestly, like we talked about earlier, the, the tall boy rides like a bigger bike and it pedals more efficiently. And I mean, I'm, I'm assuming that Kansas City doesn't have a lot of vertical. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, I, I mean, it might be technical, which right. that's fine because the tall boy is going to pedal through a lot of tech stuff really well. Yeah. Um, so if you're only occasionally, I said, if you, I would say if you lived in Moab, high tower. Yeah. But if you live in Kansas City and you go to Moab or Colorado once or twice a year, tall boy. Yeah. And the updated tall boy is, is, is a mobber of a bike. It's going to get you through chunky stuff. Porcupine rim for sure. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Definitely. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I mean, honestly, the regular Hightower, not the LT, I mean, at the 135 rear travel, that's, I mean, still not a bad all-around bike. That's it's only not. five inches. That's really what he's used to now, essentially. Yeah. Uh, so that wouldn't be a bad choice. But yeah, I mean, the tall boy, I think, is going to be a little bit more efficient all the way around. That yeah. 429 trail, though, is an outstanding bike also. Yeah. It actually pedals. It might pedal even better than the... Tall boy. Yeah, yeah. They finally got the geometries right on the 429 where they're not old school. They've definitely updated that bike. Yeah. And you've got with that one too, you've got the suspension design gives you a, which I mean, the, the tall boy's good too, but that, that pivot, man, when you unlock that thing, it tends to soak things up pretty well in the rear. When you're talking about chunky trail that you're climbing up, that's something that I find really important is a suspension design that isn't going to want to kick you up and give you pedal kickback. Um, you know, so the 429, at least to me, I haven't ridden pivots extensively, only a bit, uh, but they've felt like they've moved through imperfections in the terrain really easily. They yeah. haven't transferred that forward momentum into upper momentum. So that's something to consider. Uh, I, I think that in the, if you're going to go Santa Cruz, I would vote tall boy just because it kind of like driving cars. It's always fun to drive a slower car hard. Uh, and with the type of trails that you'll be riding on, you aren't going to be pushing your your bike to the limit uh, on the high tower a whole lot. You'll have, you know, drops and technical stuff, but I think the tall boy would give you plenty and you'll gain some efficiency there too with less travel. So yeah, I'd say tall boy or the 429, they'd be great, great choices. Yeah. Um, yeah. And since you don't have a Yeti dealer, yeah, I'd, 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 I'd ward the five, five, 4.5 out in that case. But, uh, Noah, says, uh, hey guys, love the show. I have a wheel upgrade question. I have a set of DT M1900s that, and DT Swiss, sorry, M1900s that came on my trail bike. And I'm looking for a wheel upgrade that will shave a little weight. I'm at 1900 grams right now, 1940 to be precise. And give a, and I'd also like to get a slightly wider internal width and I'm currently at 22 millimeters. I'm testing the waters with Enduro and feel like my tires start to roll or deform off the rims and I really start to corner hard. Let's cover that really quick. That could be any number of issues. Yeah. I mean, it could be down to something simple as air pressure. Yeah. Yeah. Or like certain tires, uh, yeah. you know, like they'll lack more sidewall support than others. Exactly. Uh, get a double down casing from Maxxis on your tires. And those things are like, you know, those are like shields on the side. I that's think those are good rigid. to what? Nine millimeter rounds. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <Pervious. laughs> yeah, exactly. They're pretty gnarly, man. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, so uh, that, that could be in any number of things, but certainly if your tire, if you have like a wider tire and it's on a narrow rim like that, it's going to yeah, be of course it's going to do that normally. Yeah. Yep. So he says, do you have any recommendations for a good wheel set with a 28 to 31 mil width? You guys talked about, uh, without breaking the bank, but looking at the race face turbine thirties and the, he drops about 200 grams with that. And it gives him a 30 mil internal width. He says, is this worth it? Thanks for, thanks so much for the killer podcast and super nerdy content. By the way, I miss the longer shows from the early days, more depth and bike nerdery. Keep up the good work. Well, uh, today won't be a longer show. I apologize, Noah, but sorry, Noah. Yes. What do you think, man? I think the turbine is a good wheel set. Um, I love the hub on that. They're using all off the shelf bearings, three degree engagement. It's, you know, a relatively cheap wheel set to own mm -hmm. and nothing is proprietary. Nothing is crazy hard to find. Um, and I like that new hub, how they put the, the drive ring instead of putting the drive ring into the hub, they actually put it on the free hub body mm -hmm. so that the Pauls, like if your drive ring wears out, mm -hmm. it's part of the free hub body and replaceable, not pressed into the hub. So smart thing kind of reverses what, you know, a lot of the other brands do. So I kind of like that. Yeah. Yeah. They're good wheels. Um, I honestly looking at that, I think that if you are content with, uh, sticking with your wheels for a bit more, I think in the next year to two years, we're going to see a massive, a shift in that respect, just all rims are going to be wider. Yeah. Uh, a lot of companies are just phasing out older designs right now. So, and the stuff that they're designing is all wider. So, yeah. well, you know, what's crazy is, um, Mavic and I'm probably letting the cat out of the bag a little bit early, but Dang their, no. their Sirium pro disc all road wheel set is going 23 mil internal. And that's for a gravel slash cyclocross setup. So there they're going wider than his mountain setup on Noah's, you know, bike right now. UCI, but, UCI yeah. better change things, man, with yeah. their 35 millimeter requirements for cross. 33. Or 33, forgive me. Yeah, yeah 33. They but better yeah. change that. Yeah, but honestly, Noah, like that's a good cheap wheel set to own. It's lighter than what you have and it's that, you know, 30 mil internal. So you're going to have a lot stabler platform for the sidewalls of the tire. So I think that's a good recommendation all the way around. If you want to spend a little bit more money, you know, the new next, uh, the next R carbon wheel set i think that retails for 1600 bucks and it's solid. the same hubs better spokes and a carbon rim so it's even lighter yeah uh, more wheel <clears throat> questions from jeremy he says hey guys love the podcast five stars thanks jeremy appreciate it man i've recently purchased a yeti sb5 frame he mentions that all those playing the game should now drink uh, thanks to your suggestions i have the opportunity to choose from two heavily discounted carbon wheel sets the first is a barely used set of mvm 60s and the second, a new set of E13 TRS race wheels with a 27 millimeter internal rim width. I generally, I generally ride steeper and faster trails and would love your opinion on the merits of the wider rim of the E13 versus less mass of the Envy. I'll most likely run a Minion DHF up front and Aggressor or High Roller 2 on the rear. Many thanks. Keep up the great work, Jeremy. I, I, he doesn't mention that they're the M60 high volumes. Yeah. If I, they're the high volume. Go for that. I would go there. If they're not the high volume. I would go for the 13s. Yeah. The only difference is that with the M60s, you're dealing with a DT Swiss hub, which is easier and cheaper and simpler to work with. Yep. And upgradable with the 36 tooth star ratchets, the 54 tooth star ratchets. So that's kind of something to consider as well. And it's slightly used. So therefore, you don't have warranties and lifetime crash replacement. Yeah. So that's the only downside I see to the Envies. Yeah. But if you can get you know, $2,700 wheel set for a lot cheaper. Yeah. 
Envies do ride really well, man. They yeah. make they make good wheels. Uh, but I would favor the width on the TRS races yeah. myself, especially so. if they're not the high volume M60s. Yeah, talking yeah. about improvement to ride quality, he's probably going to get more improvement out of being able to run a wider rim and a tire with a little bit more, you know, or a little less pressure in there and everything else. So. Uh, it, it's it's hard though because envy has bling factor to it, but yeah, no worry, stick with it. Uh, more wheel stuff. A lot of the questions on this. Great podcast. Love the bike tech. I'm a 132 pound XC rider and I ride a 27.5 hardtail. I'm getting older and thinking it may be time to go full suspension. I would agree, Nathan. Uh, I would go full suspension. And also, if you're on a 27.5 hardtail, not sure which one it is. Maybe like a modern giant or something like that. But uh, Things definitely, you know, full suspension 29 or XC bikes are killer. So you'll have a much more improved ride. Before I make the switch, I'd like to go to a larger tire. Uh, I'm running Ardent Race 27.5s, 2.35. I think that's the one that he wants to go to with to give me a less harsh ride. I currently ride 2.25 Rocket Rons. Also, do you think the 2.35 width is okay on the Stan's Crest MK or the Mark III, the new ones that they have? So I'm, I'm actually kind of dealing with a similar dilemma to this, Steven, I'm going to be getting a new set of tires for single track six Yeah. and I'm running the MV M fifties and I can't remember the internal width, but it's not that wide. No, they're 23 or 25. I forget. Yeah. I think they're, I think they might be 23. They're, they're pretty narrow. They're narrow. Relatively speaking. So, um, and I, I'm actually not going to run the two three fives on there because I, I think that it'll dome out the tire a bit much for what I want. Uh, the 2.2s, I think they already, you know, I'm getting a fairly domed shape with those. Yeah. So I'm not going to run the 2.35s on that. What are your thoughts on running that with, uh, on the new Mark threes? I agree with your statement because the Mark threes are 23 mil internal. I think it's too much for a 235 tire. Yeah. So I would just stick with a 225 or, you know, that's the thing is the rocket runs in a 225. It's actually a relatively small 225. Okay. Um, But I don't think he's going to gain anything. In fact, it's going to be, you know, kind of a disadvantage, especially with sidewall stability. Yeah. I don't like domed tires, man. I don't like that. So if I have a tire that's domed out, lacks stability, lateral stability, then also traction and just changes the total character of the tire, you know? And likewise could be said if you're running like 33 millimeter internal width with a 2.2, it's not going to handle right either. Yeah. So <laughs> what do you think, Kurt? Whatever you think, Steven. <laughs> oh, look at you. <laughs> <laughs> he is nodding with approval over here. So. Yeah, I, I don't know. You, you <laughs> Perfect. I'd just, I'd, I'd put the tire on and ride it. There yeah. you go. If you like it, keep it. If you don't, get a full suspension bike. You're a fan, you're a fan <laughs> of bigger volume tires, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, like the what the stash is one of your go-to bikes. Right? It's one of my go-to bikes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, fat ride, uh, fat tires give you good ride. So, uh, let's see. Okay, right here from Drew. He says, "Hey guys, Drew from Colorado again. Still loving the podcast, and I'm having a Stoke hangover from my first enduro race at Keystone Bike Park last weekend. Stoke hangovers are gnarly. The only way to get over a Stoke hanger, by the way, a Stoke hangover, by the way, is to dose yourself carefully with more Stoke. I think, right." Okay. Crack open a cold one in the morning to get rid of the hangover. Yeah. Fair. Some more stoke. Uh, that's a lot of stoke talk. I accomplished my goals of not dying, not breaking my bike, and not coming in last. Well done, Drew. Well done. The course covered just about all the double black runs in the park with two top to bottom stages. Keystone is rough, rocky, and steep, and the arm pump was debilitating for me by the end of, the, of each stage. My first question is how can I deal with arm pump and train for it in the future? 
I think you can answer this question better coming from the moto world because I've just never f dealt with it. I, I don't know. You tell me. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of misconceptions with arm pump and they even like, so basically, uh, the, the theory with arm pump is that you have fascia surrounding your muscles. Uh, that's like basically like a sheath around your muscles and you get so much blood pumping into those muscles because of constant contractions and everything else that you, the muscles end up expanding, but the fascia can't expand anymore. So it creates, uh, that really pain, right? And it also usually creates a certain amount of numbness or, or lack of sensitivity in your hands. And I've had pretty terrible or terrifying situations on my dirt bike where I go, uh, for example, Hangtown comes to mind at that track. If anybody knows that track, yep. coming down the after you do the big uphill double, coming down the next one, I jumped off of that jump and I remember landing and my hand wasn't on the bars. And I swore my hand was on the bars because my hands were so numb. Hmm. So like in terrifying crashes in, ensued thereafter. So that's like a really common thing. If the arm pump gets so bad, you don't, you think you're holding onto your bars and your hands an inch of, above your handlebars. It's rattled off and you don't even notice. So it's dangerous. Uh, the only way that I've been able to get rid of arm pump is by putting in miles. You know, like specificity is key with all things training. And you're going to ask another question here about training in a bit, but if you want to get rid of arm pump, do more riding that gives you arm pump. Yep. That's the best way to do it. Don't. That was my recommendation. <laughs> yeah. Like don't buy a stupid thing that like the forearm strong thing. If you've ever seen that where like it clamps down on your forearm and then you pump your forearm. It's so stupid. Shake it doesn't weights. work, man. Yeah. No shake weights. <laughs> <laughs> like it's so dumb. There's even uh forearm uh, or arm pump spray, man. Like just don't. <laughs> Don't, don't be gullible. Mark pump spray. Yeah, no joke. Uh, it's, it's marketed by some moto guys. It's just terrible. So you just have to do more that gives you arm pump. And then what's going to happen is that your muscles are going to become more conditioned, more efficient. And you may also get some increase in the, I, I should say, in the, the pliability of the fascia. So that's the only way to do it, man. More of it. Go back to Keystone and shred some more, and it'll help get rid of the arm pump. So, uh, first day at the Whistler Bike Park, I thought my arms were gonna just explode, right? And then we did rode the bike park on the last day. It was fine, no problems. So, there you go. Uh, my second question is around general training. I want to sign up for Trainer Road and get a smart trainer and use my hardtail on it. My hardtail has a boost rear end. What trainers or adapters will I need to accommodate this? Thanks. Uh, this I think is another one for me, Steven. I think so too. <laughs> yeah. You gave me that glance. Uh, if you have a boost rear end, uh, you basically, I would look at the Cyclops hammer. Uh, that trainer is one that you could end up, if you end up using the hammer, you've got caps that you can use for everything. So boost rear ends work just fine, or you can get a set of rollers that could work too. That's true. Um, that, you know, those are the two options really. And there are other trainers coming out with support for boost, uh, but really it just ends up to going there. Don't get any adapters or anything else that you would be running to try to move a cassette or anything like that. Don't worry about that. Just, uh, Cyclops hammer rollers, or keep your eyes peeled around inner bike time. We might have some more stuff coming out. Yeah. So Hillary, uh, Hey guys. I listen to a lot of podcasts on my road trips, which I do often in my current position as a skills coach and previously as a DH racer. Uh, and she says, I think your podcast is awesome, well-informed, great topics. And I usually agree with your analysis. So imagine my shock when you glazed over almost as a side note, the women's pro results in her U S open coverage. We said, Oh, and Jill won the women's. 
What about second place, Carolyn Washam, uh, an amazingly talented industry professional who is sweeping the pro GRT. Uh, seriously, check out some videos of this girl riding. She is smooth and controlled, not to mention being a, and she says in quotes, good human. <laughs> and in third place, the up and coming phenom, Samantha Kingshill from California. Maybe give, give them a sentence or two in the future. Just some food for thought. Otherwise, keep up the good work. Yours truly, Hillary. Uh, Hillary, thanks for sending that in. And we apologize for that. We, we didn't have enough information on that one. We should have done more. Yeah, we should have actually done more um, more research more research before, and that was kind of our bad, and I think we both noticed that in the moment. We're yeah. like, oh, yeah. that's right. We should have been better at yeah. that. So we apologize for not giving the due, due um, attention. We try to, we try to uh, I shouldn't say we try, just our perspective on things is very much that this is not a man's world, uh, although the numbers would back that up in terms of demographics in the, in the bike world. doesn't mean that we have to make it a man's world, right? Yeah. And I think that our perspective on this is very much that it's, that it's all around. So uh, I appreciate that, Hillary. Thanks for calling us on the carpet. Uh, and good luck, by the way, in your skills coaching and any DH racing you do in the future, even though it seems that you've left that behind. So Jason, you guys are the new religion doing the MTB God's work. Keep it up. Huge fan. I have a question about rotors, solid or floating, which is best. I go through at least a rotor a year, and it seems like the issue is excessive heat, which accelerates wear on both my rotors and pads. I'm wondering if I should switch from my current SRAM centerline rotor to something like a hope floating rotor. I ride about 1,200 miles a year, mostly in Marin, around Tamarancho, China Camp, Hummingbird, Diaz Ridge, etc. And my steed is a 2014 Stump Jumper Expert Evo 29er. What are your overall thoughts on floating versus solid rotors, and which rotor, floating or solid, have you had the best experience with for durability and resisting brake fade due to heat? Please name a specific brand manufacturer of a rotor if you can. Signed, your devoted parishioner. <laughs> Honestly, uh, Jason, I, so here's the thing with floating and fixed rotors, like a, a floating rotor, basically where it rivets to the, the hat of, or the braking surface has its spider assembly that goes down and rivets or bolts to the actual hat assembly yep. has a little bit of room to grow. Yep. So as heat, as it heats up, it's not that it's floating and it flops side to side and has like all kinds of motion. Mm -hmm. It literally just gives it a little bit of room in that fixture for it to grow and expand as the rotor heats up. Correct. You didn't mention your brakes at all. Yeah. First of all, not sure what you use. Um, I'm going to tell you if you, but he does say he has current SRAM centerline rotors. So I yeah. assume, assume, so I'm, I'm guessing he probably has guides of some sort. Um, the thing that I found is that the guides on centerline rotors, Typically, you get a lot of brake fade when they heat up. Um, my Jekyll came with a 203 rotor, makes it a little bit better. You actually have more material and more surface area of the rotor, mm -hmm. so it cools down more between every rotation. There we are. So that seems to help a little bit. Um, I actually don't... Um, I don't run the SRAM pads anymore because I find that they are a culprit in fade. Hmm. So I'm running actually the Jaguar Pro Extremes. I as well, thanks to your suggestion. Yeah. I'll be trying those out. So while those take a little bit you know, of heat to actually make them work properly, they love the heat and they don't fade at higher temperatures. So that's another way to look at it. Hmm. Um, secondly is if you're overheating rotors with your current setup, Shimano's Icetech rotors. Yeah, are phenomenal at dissipating heat and getting it away from the actual braking surface. Cooling fins. Yeah. So the problem is they do grow a little bit. So if you have an imperfection in that rotor and it doesn't, you know, when it's cold and it clears your brake pads on both sides as you spin the tire, 
and it heats up, you might get a little of that and you'll have to work that in because the Icetech rotors are a little bit softer. Yeah. So I've being, wondered, I've wondered, I mean, it, and my mind is always just settled on, it's probably because of weight, but why we don't have floating rotors, more floating rotors in the mountain bike world. I think it's because they're expensive. Yeah, that, that too, right? Yeah. And, it, and correct me if I'm wrong, but they do give some rotational play. We're not talking about lateral, but there is some play rotationally to a certain extent. Yeah, and yeah. It's, the, the rotational play is only when they're cold. Yep. Usually they're supposed to not have that as soon as they're being used. Yep, yeah, so, and... Yeah, it's 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 kind of a shock to me, but I, it makes sense. I mean, making a standard rotor is probably a whole lot cheaper yeah. than making one like that. So I mean, people have a hard enough time spending 60, 70 bucks on an ice tech rotor. Yeah. You know, imagine a full floating, like a true full floating rotor. They get really expensive to manufacture. Yeah. Hope has found a way to keep the price down a little bit, but also, you know. Yeah. 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 Not bad. Uh, on brakes, really quick. Then uh, this is just the from from Whistler, top to bottom, from blue velvet all the way through down uh, down through there. How are your levels? I was on the level ultimate brakes, which I was like, when I got there, I was like, oh no. On 160 rotors, right? All the way around? 160s, yeah. And weighing about 147 pounds. Uh, so That's oddly and, specific. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, my neuroses that I have with this stuff. Yeah. So, but, uh, <laughs> but that, and then I, you know, I had like a, I had not much weight on me in terms of like equipment. Like I just had a bag that had some like camera stuff and that was it, but not yeah. much probably another like 10 pounds with helmet and everything else. Okay. And I got hardly any brake fade uh, toward the end that I just had a little bit more pull. That was it on my levers. Uh, but that's impressive, man, for tiny brakes like that. So yeah. kudos, SRAM. I did go through, I had uh, not a whole lot of time on those brakes and I went completely through the pads. I haven't hit metal yet. I wouldn't let that happen, but um, I need them. I need to replace them. Well, that's why we had you order a set. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So uh, you will, if you go to Whistler, bring extra pads. Um, so that covers the questions. Uh, we're going to get right down to things with uh, with the business today. It's going to be focused on, actually, it's kind of, it's an article that you wrote a while back, Kurt. I was reading it on the way back from Whistler and it was particularly timely. So uh, let's get into the business. It's business time. We're going to talk about different types of trail and you wrote something. So I, I found this on MTBR. Was it originally published somewhere else too? I'm not no. sure. Okay. Just published on MTBR. Yeah. You wrote uh, tra uh, an article that said, we need primitive trails. And uh, for those that don't know, Kurt uh, writes, not these days, it seems like as much we used to write under the pseudonym of the angry single speeder more often. Um, yeah. Yeah. I will again. Yeah. Oh, just chicken. Okay. Oh, <laughs> it's coming. Uh, so, but I read this, this article and really you were talking about uh, primitive trails and how we need more of them. And I realized that I spent a week riding some very not primitive trails, very not, uh, handmade, man-made, engineered, modern, uh, whatever else you want to call them. These things are, are, are definitely the trails that I rode. Like we mentioned half Nelson earlier, that thing was like designed and actually Red Bull funded that trail. Brandon Seminook ended up like, I guess, like directing a lot of it. And so like, it makes sense. Like that trail is designed as a roller coaster rather than, than a transportation, uh, you know, a byway or anything else like that. But these trails that I rode, they were so, I guess, uh, manicured and designed specifically for something. And they did deliver that experience that was intended with that, 
But some trails, I felt like they were designed heavily, but they fell short on that. And I just, this trail, this is pretty interesting. So I wanted to talk about primitive trails versus modern trails. What do you prefer, Stephen? Like Downeyville, for example, where you spend a lot of time, Kurt, that's a lot of primitive trail up there. That's like old school stuff. And that's actually what I prefer. Okay. So why do you prefer that to the, to the man-made, the, the, or not man, but you know what I mean? The, the modernized stuff. I look at something. So when you have like a really buffed out flow trail mm-hmm. or something like that, that's designed to be a roller coaster, it, I guess it allows you to be kind of lazy okay. in your, I don't want to say line choice, but in how you ride it. Like if you look at say a line in Whistler, if we're going to be topical about it, yep. that trail, you don't have to think about a whole lot. Yeah. You're just like, am I going fast enough to clear this, you know, 15 or 30 foot, you know, lip double? Mm-hmm. Am I going fast enough to clear that? That's what you're thinking about. Yeah. Am I going to throw a sweet whip? Yeah. But Instagram? other than that, you don't have to worry about rocks in the trail. You don't have to worry about, you know, the four inch line choice that's going to make a difference between <laughs> yeah. you smacking a tree and, you know, it's a freeway with yeah. jumps in it. So I really like Downeyville type stuff where when you're running mock speeds, you're on the, you're flirting with the, with disaster essentially. Yeah. Um, you have to be really focused and you have to know exactly where your bike is and know exactly where the ends of your handlebars are. And you have to know right where your, you know, your pedals are on your crank rotation so that you don't strike a, a rock that happens to be in the trail because things can go seriously wrong on yeah. that kind of trail. And it it makes you focus. And that's what I like about primitive trails more so than groomed out engineered modern trails you're you're a technically very proficient rider as well if people don't know that they they should know that now okay so you're a very good rider and not just a fast rider which you are but you're also technically skilled too so if anybody's wondering if you're feeling in a situation where you feel like that trail sounds terrifying uh, that's steven's background uh, on that and kurt i assume that you prefer the primitive style trail always Always. Always, yeah. And why is that? Same reasons as Steven or something? Um, Well, I think in the case of like around Downeyville, the reason why I really um, prefer it is that a lot of those trails were built in a bygone era. Yeah. Um, A lot of the trails were built by prospectors for the purpose of actually transporting um, machinery and and running donkeys up and down the hill and and hiking up and down the hill. And um, you really, I don't know, you get a real sense of history and, and, and channeling back to a time when they were doing that where it wasn't recreational. They built these trails to to get rich, basically, try and get yeah. rich, you know, yep. or die trying. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's really, um, for me, I, I guess at my point in my life, you know, I've ridden enough trails that... Um, I'm looking for something that's a little bit, got a little bit more substance. And I feel like, especially the trails around Downeyville, the primitive ones, the old prospecting trails, there's ones that, you know, that like aren't even on the map that I'm discovering and and bringing back into the fold. I'm blown Um, away by that, by the way. I always see you you posting about this and like, he found another new one. Like, (laughs) yeah, they're, they're, I mean, they're right. They're not new. They're super old. New to you. Yeah. Yeah. New to me. And they're disappearing. And, um, I think. The other um, important thing about these primitive trails is that legally nowadays you can't build trail like that anymore. Yeah, it's overgrade. The switchbacks aren't like sustainable for high traffic, mm-hmm. um, and they're um, you know they're just they're rugged and they're primitive. Like you know, 
obviously, like we're talking about. Yeah. But they're just not, it's a lost form. It's a lost art. Like those trails, you just can't build them these days unless it's a rogue illegal trail. But but because it's in a historic trail, especially, and this is for sure like in the Downeyville area, these historic trails, they're part of our heritage. And they're actually technically, even if they're a non-system trail, because they didn't make like the travel management plan because they're overgrade or whatever, yeah. they're still historic trails and they're legally, technically non-motorized legal. Yeah. And, and, and individual citizens like any one of us can go out there and legally maintain these. Um, Pretty cool. And yeah. so, yeah, it's history. We can't just, because it didn't make some, you know, federal travel management plan, just like forget about these pieces of history and then let them just disappear. Yeah. You got to keep them alive because it's a, you know, it's a, it's a piece of history and it's a really, really amazing riding experience. There's this one trail in Downeyville that I've spent a lot of time, um, help resurrecting. And I took, um, the guys that I work with at Yuba expeditions after a post work shuttle run and took them up to this trail. I had been talking to them, talking them up about it for months, and they just never, you know, like were able to rally <clears throat> and make it happen. And by the time we got to the bottom of that thing on the first run, we were all like children, like five year olds, just like giddy, giddy. Which trail is that? It, it's called Saint Charles. Okay. And um, Saint Charles Hill, and they were just like that. Might be the best trail I've ever ridden in Downeyville. Wow. And it's a trail that. You know, like motor riders have kept logged out, which yeah. is great. Without their help, it yeah. would not be passable, especially mm -hmm. this one log that's like six feet in diameter. Honestly, it's enormous. <laughs> um, but, you know, motor riders don't necessarily like brush out the trail because they're on a moto. They don't really they need, don't need to. to. Like on a mountain bike, you need to, unless you <laughs> want to get a like semi log jammed in your wheel and then right. break your bike. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I had to go through there and spend a lot of time with the McLeod and just like in, and clippers and, you know, yeah. but it's get The corners are now starting to get dialed in and, um, yeah. This is interesting because I honestly, so uh, my background is from the motocross side of things. And the thing is, I think a lot of people think, oh, motocross riders, they're probably good when things get difficult. We're, we're not necessarily. No, they have a throttle. That's we're good different. with speed. Yeah. And that's it. Now, earlier uh, we had a guy um, or a question that was submitted for a guy that's like, you know, a hair scrambles rider, a guy that rides more cross country motorcycle stuff. Right. So that's like slow in the woods, technical stuff. I never did that. Yeah. We trail rode a lot as a, as, you know, father and son, my dad and I would head out into the hills, but still I, it was mostly stuff that was just easily managed and especially more speed was the answer. Yeah. And so with speed, I'm comfortable with technical stuff. When it slows down, I'm very uncomfortable and it's something that I always work on. Right. And I want it to become a strength for me as a result my perspective was really the opposite of yours, right? Like I rode Porcupine Rim, for example, and I was like, this was, I just wasted a day. And, you know, I was going down Jeep Trail and I was just like, what am I doing? Why am I not on single track? That's kind of like defining my experience and, and kind of allow, you know, delivering something to me rather than just, you know, leaving everything open, then I get to pick what it needs to be. And I feel like I need to change that perspective. And even though I'm grinning ear to ear still from riding Whistler, and it was so much fun because I think we can all agree that a well-engineered trail is still an incredible experience. Yeah. And the cool thing is if it's really well done, you can deliver an amazing experience. But after riding it for a week, I was kind of thinking, you know what? I actually, I do miss trails that are 
that are they leave it up to me to pick those things out and and are more primitive like that and and not only on the enjoyment side of things but also on the sustainability side of things it's kind of crazy how a lot of newer trails so i think like you mentioned in that article that building even you know we're talking a mile a, a mile of trail could end up being six figures in the tahoe basin up here oh yeah definitely and it's and that's you know so much work has to go into it, then permitting costs and everything it's expensive mm-hmm. man it's expensive to do, but to build a new, uh, a, a you know, modern trail that's really well sculpted and everything else, but also is sustainable, that takes engineering, man. That is a lot of work to be able to design a trail like that. If you have an older trail, a lot of these older trails have, are so old that the, the, the whole region around that's kind of formed around the trail. And sure, it may not, you know, it may have water that runs down it, it may have, you know, spots that get washed out, everything else, but it's still there. And I think that a lot of those older trails, you know, they're sustainable in, in a different respect. Absolutely. I see a lot of people try to build modern trail, but do it incorrectly, and it's less sustainable than the old primitives. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And you look at a lot of the, the Downeyville type stuff, it's just, it's hard to build a new trail and engineer it and give it the personality that some of these older trails have. That's one of the biggest things I think that and Steve hit it right on the head. Like personality is huge with these old trails. Every single one of these old prospecting trails has a unique personality, a, mm-hmm. a unique pitch to it, a unique set of corners, unique features that it by you know passes by, um, unique rock fields that it goes over. Like every single one of these trails has a, like one or two little characteristics that you know you're on that trail like modern trail you could be anywhere i mean when you're limited to gradient and like certain kinds of corners and and you know Mm -hmm. like radiuses on corners like you i mean that same trail you ride one of them you're ridden on pretty much all of them yeah 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 you know yeah and that's that's basically the the kind of feeling that i had at the end of, of riding whistler it was incredible again it was awesome but I felt like I was getting the same experience on a bunch of different trails. Uh, wanted something unique. Another thing behind this, and we, t- we talked about this a bit earlier, though, is the the history. And I'm sure we're making history on the trails that we're building now, right? Mm-hmm. But you can't let go of that older stuff. I remember you talking about like a medicine bottle I think you found way back from like way back when on one of these trails. And when I was riding in, in Squamish in that area, I was – I really wanted to know more of the history of that region. I was thinking like, what, you know, I was looking at these logging roads and some of them just absurdly steep. And I was just thinking like, I want to know who these guys were that did this, you know? And we were all there riding our mountain bikes and enjoying that region in a totally different area with a totally different purpose. Maybe that'll be history at some point. Who knows what we'll be doing, you know, decades down the road, who knows? But looking at that, I was just, that I kept thinking of Downeyville, and I've never actually ridden Downeyville, by the way. Confession time. Hmm. It's crazy, oh right? Oh, my God. I know. Dude. I know. I never <laughs> have. Um, but it's – and that's something that's honestly more than the trail because I haven't ridden it yet. More than the trails in Downeyville, what's appealing to me is the history of that region. Mm-hmm. And and maybe it's just because I'm particularly keen on that stuff, but I – I've always loved the thought of like what I'm traveling on. It's not just me, but I'm, I'm, you know, I'm going on something that somebody else of much greater import or of much greater necessity actually created this trailer that did something like that. I think that it's super important. I mean, I, I, perhaps it's no less noble. I don't know, but we're, I feel like a lot of the times we're just creating trails to have fun, which is good, but man, these guys are creating trails to live. Yeah, you know, definitely. And that's, that's, like that's the most amazing thing. thing. 
that's like for me the most uh, amazing part of riding those trails is you know thinking about that or getting to the top of the mountain and there's an enormous like mine that's abandoned with a huge stamp mill and, and like you know these things weigh tons and tons and you're just like how did they transport all of this super heavy machinery and equipment up here amazing you know? i I'm kind of upset right now and I need to like halt the show for a brief moment. Um, can you get your phone out and let me know what you're doing Saturday? Cause whatever it is, yeah. you're not doing it. Kurt, can you book us like some shuttles Possibly. and some time with you and yeah. someone else? Well, to do I, some so I drive the van all day. Yeah. Um, so I'm committed during the day, but I always ride at about four o'clock after I drive my last shuttle. Well, that's what I'm thinking. Like a one thirty shuttle for you know for you guys could do a lap you guys could do a downhill lap and then we could hook up again like the last shuttle that i drive jump on it and then we'll go do like a lake space and ride or something yeah this would be just remember my knee i'm a little bit limited on the knee so don't kill me i'm trying to think of a way that i can work family into this i need to have a family saturday it's been a long time since i've had a day or saturday at home that's true. Let's do this though. Let's find some way to make this work. Okay. I'll text Sarah later today, your okay. wife. <laughs> yeah. And I'll say, look, we've, we've got some things we need to do. Okay. Cool. This is serious. I'm very upset right now. It's, uh, <laughs> well, I'm glad we can remedy it. it. And, and I guess this is maybe the last point that I want to touch on with this, but so with modern trails, it's pretty easy to get involved in trail work. There's usually trail crews that are working on developing those things pretty regularly. And basically you just have to not be an idiot. You have to show up and you have to be, you know, responsible when you're working on the trail and safe and, uh, be willing to give some of your time and energy. And that's what you can do to contribute to trail work, which is awesome. And more of us should do that. But how, is it different on the primitive trails? Like how, what's the process like? I mean, do you have to get approval for that stuff or? Yeah. Like? Well, like I mentioned earlier, um, well, first I'm going to give a plug to the Sierra Buttes trail stewardship because without awesome. SBTS, none of the trails that we're riding today would actually be very passable or they'd maybe even already be shut down for erosion sediment into streams and all that stuff. Cause we do environmental work. I mean, we're protecting, you know, habitat and ecosystems and waterways um, by making the trails more sustainable yep. and building new trail and building yep. it right, but still keeping it wild and keeping it rugged and not feeling too uh, developed. Yeah. Um, a lot of that has to do with, you know, Henry O'Donnell, who's the trail boss. He's um, a legend and not only on riding a mountain bike, but also building trail. Hmm. And uh, he understands that because he's, you know, born and raised Downeyville. His dad was a miner. His grandfather was a logger. He's the next generation of, wow. you know, mountain like living, which is trail building. Yeah. And, um, but with these, with these historic trails, um, we can't get funding as the stewardship. We apply for grants to build and um, maintain trails. We've got a big grant that we were granted to maintain a lot of the trails in Downeyville that need a lot of love, uh -huh. years and years of use. And, and went last winter was pretty bad on the trails with all the erosion. Um, so we get funding to maintain those trails and we employ a trail crew. But with the non-system trails, these historic trails, we can't get funding to maintain these trails. Uh -huh. um, so it's up to individuals to actually go out there and keep it keep them passable now yeah. it's it's legal technically these historic trails that were once you know system trails but now have become you know non-system trails they're not illegal to ride on a mountain bike and they're not illegal to work on but mm. we can't get funding to get a trail crew out there to maintain them so it's up to someone like me in my free time to go out there and put the love in and um it's a rewarding experience you know it's awesome like you're 
you're keeping history alive and you're sharing it with others and they get to experience it and and to see the smile on their face. It's, it's a cool uh, feeling. Yeah. And I think once you begin to understand the heritage that these trails carry and the things that were done on them, you know, and the purpose, the purposes that they exist for, it really changes your experience in Downeyville and while you're riding it, it's, it's huge. I almost, uh, to be honest, part of, I think the reason why I haven't ridden Downeyville yet is because I'm a bit afraid of becoming addicted almost mm-hmm. to that aspect of it. Cause I, I love, I, I don't know if it's just because, you know, from my father's side of the family, we come from the South and mm-hmm. I don't know if it's just our reliance on storytelling and history and everything else from that side or what, but man, I absolutely, uh, I'm a romantic with that type of stuff, you know, and I and I love love that type of thing. And that's pretty cool when you look at that. It's not just an experience of riding your bike and how great it is. And no, we get we talk endlessly about the gear side of things and all that, and that's good. But imagine that whole, that's a whole different layer to enjoying, uh, you know, I should say to bicycle riding. Mm-hmm. You know, your bicycle suddenly becomes a vehicle to go back through history and to be able to learn more about that stuff. And hopefully that makes you a better person. You know, it's pretty, pretty amazing stuff. Did so, you just say that mountain bikes are DeLoreans? I did say they're DeLoreans. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Good. Don't hit 88 miles an hour. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it's, I, I think the, the other thing I want to mention is that, you know, um, we have a lot of important partnerships with uh, land managers, both federal, local, you know, state, um, and private. And that's um, important to have in the region that you'd be working on yeah. with these trails. I mean, 70 to 80% of Sierra County, where Downeyville is, is federally managed land. Wow. And over the years, you know, there have been efforts in, you know, the past to try and shut down, literally just shut down these trails. Like, make the, you know, there was a there was a roadless uh, travel act um, in the early to mid-90s where they were basically just shutting down all these old routes um, because they just wanted to... It, Mountain. If you ask people living in the mountains, they'll tell you it's because if they wanted the federal government wanted people out of the mountains and living in like developed communities in the city yeah. or something, and just like you know, it's it's like this hardcore conservation kind of mindset instead of like preserving it but enjoying it. Like, yeah. how can you in you know re- uh, appreciate our wild places if you can't access them? I agree. And um, so for me, I, I, it's kind of like a, like a calling. You know, I'm like I need to keep these routes open. I need to keep, some of them need to be shut down because they're like, you know, duplicitous. They're just like, you don't need them. Yep. But other ones are crucial connectors and they need to remain open and they need to remain passable. Um, and so like, that's kind of my focus because we can't get funding for it. So somebody's got to do it. Yeah. So I'm going to go do it. Yeah. I like that. Take and you've got, initiative. and you've got a, a better platform than the average person. I think you've got a, I don't want to say a louder voice, but you can reach a lot more people. Yeah, I think you have Hopefully. the impact in that calling is definitely something that I appreciate as a mountain biker. Yeah. So, yeah. So hopefully this is, if anybody's in the situation that I was in, where you more readily appreciate the modernized manicured, you know, engineered trail like that, hopefully this is, is at least piqued your interest to look on the other side and try to appreciate the more primitive trails. So I certainly am going to be making a concerted effort on that. And also 
trying to get out there and, and contribute with that too. So hopefully it gets you out there exploring the lost places around you and enjoying it more. I want to say one last quick thing. Please, yeah. About on this topic. Yeah. I was talking with Mark Weir the other day and he and I have spent a lot of time up, you know, in the region. I'm kind of like following in his footsteps. He did a lot of the exploring in the early 2000s and late 90s at Downeyville when he was dominating there. Yeah. And for those that don't know, Mark Weir's a mountain bike legend. You can look him up. Yep. And so, you know, we were working together on this trail called Spencer Creek and um, it's an insane it's one of the only trails in Downeyville that I actually get a little nervous when I drop in on because it's really rowdy. Yeah. And uh, we've spent a lot of time like rehabbing that trail and making it passable. Two, three years ago, it wasn't. And, you know, I started kind of like posting pictures and talking a little bit about it on, on social media. And, and Mark was like, you know, like, hey, man, don't don't talk about that. That's a secret. Let's, you know, why are you blowing it up? Yeah. And it's like we kind of we don't I don't want to blow it up, but these trails, they need to be ridden. Yeah. They don't get ridden at all. And if they don't ever get ridden, they just start to deteriorate. And and we're faced and we face the problem that we're facing with these routes disappearing. I don't want to blow them up. And people, you know, there's some naysayers who are like, oh, you're gonna, you know, blow up these trails and everyone's gonna be riding them and then they're gonna get shut down. It's like, no. When people come to Downeyville, they don't have a lot of time. Yeah. They just jump on the shuttle and go ride the Downeyville downhill. Yeah. And they don't like want to explore. The only people who are going to go explore these primitive trails are the ones who've been to Downeyville a hundred times and they've already ridden the shuttle and they're like, I'm looking for something different and I want to yeah. pedal and I want to earn it. Where do I go? Which is yeah. kind of where I've been the yeah. last couple seasons. Yeah. And it's about sharing these trails. Like, and, and, and we figured that out. He realized we do need to like spread the word on these trails and share them to keep them alive. Because if you ride them and you appreciate them, you'll respect them and you'll give some love back to them and they'll stay good. And yeah, the thing that, you know, you have to understand is a lot of these trails that are like that, you have to earn them. There's no way to do a shuttle on a lot right. of these trails. Correct. So they're, they're not going to get overrun people that, That's right. you know, the only people that are going to ride it are the ones that are going to have to earn that 4,000 feet. Yeah. And they deserve it. it. And they deserve and they to deserve ride it. that trail. Exactly. They've earned it. Yep. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. Awesome stuff. I feel like we had a good conversation. I believe so. This is yeah. good stuff. Thanks, Kurt, for coming, man. You bet. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, we need to have you on more often. It's good fun. Yeah. We'll close things out with some tips from, from each of us. You don't care? They'd count on your tips to live? All right. Steven, kick it off. What's your tip? My tip. Um, last fall, Pedro's uh, released all their new lubricants. Yeah. And uh, they did a full redesign on everything. I always liked their Sin Lube as a wet lube, but mm -hmm. found that it attracted dirt a little bit too much. So as soon as you got into like sandy and, you know, very, um, I guess, silty, or dusty. silty, dusty stuff where it's going to fly up onto the chain as you're riding, um, it'd get a little bit gunked up. But yeah. their new Enduro Lube, yeah, that's like my go-to now. It's this weird hybrid of a wet and dry lube. Phenomenal stuff. Deadly silent on the Eagle and on the 11 speed force on the cross bike. Nice. Lasts way longer than any dry lube I've ever used. And it's just good stuff. Is it, um, uh, is it cheaper than the demand Tech stuff? Uh, everything's cheaper than Demontech. So expensive. Oh so, yeah. I love it, but it's so expensive. Yeah. yeah. It's like 12 bucks for a tiny little drip bottle. Yeah. So. This is a large drip bottle and it's like 1295. Okay. So nice. Not terrible, but great stuff. I'm gonna give that a shot. Yeah. Uh, my, my, my tip this week is a USWE hydration pack. So that's U S W E. 
They make these hydration packs. Liat, if you've ever seen a Liat hydration pack, it's basically Liat's just licensing that design. They're just putting their brand on it. Uh, these packs are awesome. They have like a four-point harness design almost. Like basically it's it has, um, instead of having like traditional backpack straps and then like a chest strap, it's actually more like a harness system with a central buckle in the center. And it does such a good job of keeping things anchored to you if you run a, if you run like a, a, I'm just going to call it what it is. If you run a fanny pack, you don't have to worry about this, but if you're running something on your shoulders like that, it's always a pain to have everything sloshing around and moving around on you. Yeah. Uh, I know Camelback released a new one and the world is raving about it, but too many people that are usually paid to say good things about things have said good things about that thing. So it makes me not believe that. Uh, in this case, this Usui pack is it just holds still. They're expensive. Uh, they're pretty, they're not cheap, but I absolutely loved mine at Whistler. So, and I'm like an anti-pack guy. I hate wearing stuff on my back, but those, those ones I can do. So that's mine. Kurt. Um, I'm not too much of a like, um, race enhancement or performance enhancement geek, but, um, I've been talking with the, these folks at topical edge. Yeah. They make this topical cream. It's not steroidal. <laughs> it is not, <laughs> but it's, um, it's designed, you put it on your legs before a workout and it's designed to, um, like minimize lactic acid buildup and prevent cramping. And, and, you know, so you can exercise longer without, you know, losing power. Yeah. Um, and at the Carson city off road, uh, I pre-wrote it a couple of days before this was a few weeks ago on my single speed. I was going to do the 50 mile event and I felt terrible and my legs felt bad. I was just like, man, it's going to be a rough day on Saturday. It was a hot day. Um, people were cramping. It was, it was bad. It was and very bad. <laughs> so I had that, I had some topical edge. I'm like, well, this is the time to give it a try. You know, yeah. if there's any time it's now. So, uh, before the event, put it on my legs and, um, went out and, absolutely crushed the 50 miler like my legs you did by the way the whole time i was feel a thing i was blown away when i saw you at the finish I was like you already finished <laughs> i was like what <laughs> did you do two laps instead of three <laughs> did he beat I, you no 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 but, uh he was not far off i was blown away man that was like i was seriously impressed i've actually used so i've used the topical edge stuff in full disclosure we actually had a ride with them and they provided a bunch of product for us from san francisco down to carmel for mm -hmm. sea otter mm -hmm. And uh, had no way of telling what if it was if it was effective there, but I've used it in situations since. And basically, so that people know, it's not just like some magic cream. Uh, sodium bicarbonate actually helps. Uh, so, or uh, basically, like you'll hear about the hour record attempts. Uh, Bradley Wiggins, I believe he took a spoonful, a big old spoonful of baking soda before that it does aid in buffering lactate. Right. And, and basically, um, you know, lactic acid, isn't the, the problem here you create lactate as you work harder, you create more lactate. That lactate is actually jet fuel for your mitochondria. It's pretty sweet. They can take that back in. So imagine you had like a hose on your exhaust pipe and it went back into your fuel tank and that worked, that would be sweet. But at some point you start creating too much exhaust, too much lactate and your body's like, okay, I'm overloaded. I can't do it. Then what happens is that a bunch of, sorry, we're getting nerdy on this, but it creates an excess uh, hydrogen rich environment because every time you reprocess lactate and that's getting created, it actually spits off a hydrogen atom. That's one of the assumptions why we feel that burning in our muscles. Uh, it's not and because, and that does create an acidic environment, but lactic acid itself isn't existing there. It's just too much lactate building up. Our body can't reprocess all of it. That's what the problem is. So this actually is topical application of sodium bicarbonate. And it's the thought is that it would do the same thing. 
And I have to say, I, I never want to believe any of that stuff works. I'm a skeptic. And with, but with that stuff, I have noticed a correlation between no cramping when I have that on. Mm-hmm. And then a day like Carson City off-road, I didn't use it. I should have used it. And I was absolutely wrecked. Susanville was a XC race that was not five hours long, like the Carson City off-road, but it was like three hours long mm-hmm. and r- hotter even that day and really difficult. I think that course is much harder there than the one that I rode at Carson City off-road. Wow. And I did not, I did not cramp at all. My legs felt fresh. And I, I mean, I, there are a lot of other factors, but I am starting to notice once again, not causation here. I'm not saying that, but correlation, I think that it does yeah. work. So, I think you're right. I mean, I, I couldn't believe, I usually cramp on days that hot Yeah. and I didn't even come close to cramping, which I couldn't believe. And yeah. so my two <laughs> topical edge and the right amount of beet juice, man, <laughs> yeah. those two things work pretty darn well. Yeah. Yeah. You did really well that day. So. Throwback to Mammoth Mountain 2014. <laughs> oh, no. The beet juice and uh, orange juice in the blender. Oh, that's right. Before Kamikaze Games. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you and, and I got down with that. Yeah, and we didn't feel the elevation nearly as badly <laughs> no. as other people. There we are. Yeah, there's there's science behind it, man. We, we did beet have juice. an Easton Haven carbon wheel explode in my face <laughs> in the condo. <laughs> that had to have been as a result of the beet juice, I'm I sure. think it was. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. But so from what you were saying. Yeah. Your explanation of how this topical edge works, yeah. baking soda is a turbocharger for it, your muscles. It, it's no, more specifically baking soda, it, it is a lactate buffer is how it's categorized. So mm. basically it, it decreases the production of lactate or it delays it is more accurate. Okay. It delays that, that creation of it. So okay. that's why it's super important with the hour record, because if you're racing at an hour, all out you're riding if you paced evenly that would be at your lactate threshold for that hour so you're right on that edge and any little extra effort will put you in a hole you can't dig out of at that so that's why they do it so nice thanks for joining us everybody going to mtbpodcast.com to check out the latest episode share it with your friends please that would be awesome if each if if each person shared it with one person that would double things that's math and then if they did it twice that we would have exponential. This would be pretty great. So uh, please do that and uh, check things out in the store. We will have everything up this coming week on the store, top caps, all that business. It'll be good. And let us know if you want the kit and uh, we'll hopefully get some of that social proof over to a company and get it going. Thanks everybody. Talk next week. Have nice day. Hey guys, Jonathan here. Just wanted to thank you again for listening and let you know that if you like the song that you're hearing now and the one that you heard in the intro, it comes from Wave Riders Entertainment, my good friend Tommy Walter. Check it out if you're looking for more beats like this or some awesome tracks to listen to. We'll talk to you next week.